Welcome to another exciting edition of the Dr. Funk Podcast. And now, here's your host, Dr. Funkenberry. Welcome, everyone, to the Dr. Funk Podcast. What is going on? Thank you guys so much for subscribing on iTunes, on Stitcher, everywhere else, YouTube. Today, we have a very, very special guest on the 40th anniversary of For You. We have Prince's first manager, Owen Husney. Hi, thank you. <laughs> What's going on, Owen? I don't know. I've been hearing about you for so many years. I've been listening to you, and its uh, I have to put the reverse on here. It's a pleasure uh, to meet you and uh, uh, feel very good about being here. Now, not only is this the 40th anniversary release date of For You, you have a new book out today, Famous yeah. People Who've Met Me. <laughs> Famous People Who've Met Me. Right. And y- you know, I didn't, and the book is not written this way. I did not want it to be a brag piece, you know, like, and then I told this artist to do that. And I, I, the, so it, it's the experience of, I wrote it from the experience of you're seeing things through my eyes, like a fly on the wall. And uh, cause I had read too many memoirs that were just brag pieces and that's not what this is about. And that's not what I, you know, wanted to do. So I was thinking around for a title. It's like, Okay, the least braggy thing would be famous people who met me because I was just the guy back, you know, backstage, you know, and so the the title seemed, you know, apropos. A little tongue in cheek, right? For some people who may not. I would see there was major tongue in cheek on it. Then we have on the front cover of the book, there's an arrow pointing to my name. Okay, there's Owen Husney. Right, not the other guy. Yeah, not the other guy, Prince, who was on there. That's that's from an in-store we did, and I know it was either near Inglewood in Los Angeles here or someplace like that. I write about it in the book. It's called Unique Records, and it was the first time that, through my eyes again, I realized, whoa, something's going on here because we pull up in this limousine, you know, the record wasn't even seriously happening at that point. And, but Warner Brothers wanted us to look like rock and roll and rock and rollers or stars, you know. So they put us in a limousine and we drive up. And Prince says something to me like, must be a sale going on in that grocery store over there because there's a huge lineup outside the grocery store. And he said, well, we'll get some, we'll get some snacks after for, because we were going, we were on this big long tour of promotional tour. And we pull into that parking lot in this nondescript shopping mall someplace over south in, uh, in Los Angeles here. And the suit and the, the supermarket crowd d- suddenly sees us and they start running towards us. And this hadn't happened before. I mean, we were just newbies out there, you know? And, you know, we were trying to look like badass funksters. And here we are. We got this album on Warner Brothers and both of us are on the back of this limo scared to death, you know? And the crowd converges upon the, uh, on the limousine and they start rocking it. And I'm going from, you know, how cool is this to, I could die, you know, <laughs> Prince and I could, right. something bad could happen here. But it was interesting. We, we did it. So we figured it out. We figured out what to do. And that was to pull around to the back of the store and run in through the, 
the iron door that they had in the alleyway of uh, of the store because we just didn't we didn't want to look like little nothings running away uh but seriously they were rocking the car so hard and this hadn't been experienced before and the minute i got into the record store there that's on the cover of the book i immediately phoned warner brothers i said hey we need some kind of security only to hear god bless them you know to hear you guys are being prima donnas go out there do your promotional tour and i'm saying no i think we've got something here there is a phenomena and i can smell this a mile away and uh you know, we proved it true. Prince was great because he was thinking, and he says, Owen, you got your camera? I said, yeah, it's right here. He said, start taking pictures, and, you know, and let's get in the back door and run into the back door, and then everybody will filter in through the front. But Right. No. And this was for all of this, if people don't understand, this was Prince's first promotional tour for for you which is now 40 years old all of this and more hard to is believe for you with love sincerity and deepest care my life with you i share and that was the opening lyrics before you the only lyrics of it what kicked off this 40-year journey now his life with you he shared now how did this all come to be and start i know you detail in the book so we won't go super fully into it because we want people to purchase the book which is a really great read it's got a lot of great photos that hopefully will not end up online but they're really good photos so how did this journey all begin you know it it well with me personally or the prince journey because I'll uh, you personally and then also the Prince journey because your background is what created this. Song well, you know, well. one of the things that while I was writing the book and I realized is I, I think there's a lot of people who felt that my life began and ended with the artist Prince mm -hmm. and <clears throat> really not true. There was a whole series of things that I was involved with and things that I did leading up to Prince. As I look back retrospectively, I began to see <clears throat> that I was in training for the day that I, you know, would bump into Prince. And so I started out, I'm not going to go through the whole litany, we'd be here for five hours, but I started out actually being beat up mercilessly, whatever it's, beating up to a, beaten to a pulp in high school and junior high. And I was a nerd and I still am a nerd and I wave my nerd hag flag very high, very proud of that. Because it was just meaning I was thinking differently than everybody back there, you know, in Minnesota in that particular high school. And uh, essentially what happened is I learned how to play guitar and I sold my clarinet and bought a guitar. And I'll go through this very quickly, formed a band. And what was interesting is that our band wasn't like the greatest musicians on, on the face of the earth. But when we came together, and we were the first band, by the way, in that area of the country to have a standout kind of Mick Jaggerish lead singer. Everybody else was kind of doing, you know, Beach Boy songs and these nice little harmony things. And we came out doing some really badass blues and converting those songs into kind of a white boy garage band cover version of old blues songs and stuff. You know, the Stones did it. And we were just in this little minuscule world in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota doing it. But it caught on because we had attitude. 
and and we had when the sound came together there's like a wall of sound and then we had this lead singer who came out and he was really cool sunglasses and the whole thing and it's really funny because i was nerd guy here in you know in high school and i decided that uh we'll talk to the high school principal and see if we can play the dance at the high school Interestingly enough, everybody showed, all the football players, God bless them, they showed up to beat the little nerd boy up who got in this band because they thought it was going to be so embarrassing <laughs> to have the nerd Owen, uh, you know, playing in a band. It would be so embarrassing. But we showed up, and they literally showed up to beat me up. That's how we got the crowd in there. It was a crowd not because we were famous. Right. It was the crowd that showed up to kill me. <laughs> and And... We broke out. We came out and did some song. I think it was a Stone song that we had, you know, rejiggered somehow. And the place went wild. And the girls came, the high school girls came from the back. And they shoved their way up front to see us. And it was like star time. And that was my, you know, if you've ever seen the movie Carrie, you know, because she went back to her high school, you know, her homecoming dance or whatever. And she blew up the place and burned it down. I did it figuratively by music and through music. And it was my passion, and I didn't know it, but it was my passion. So we played our graduation. We played at the school all the time. Then we started playing regionally. And after my high school graduation tour, we left off on tour because I had brought a record. We cut a record. We borrowed $500 from the lead singer's uncle, recorded a record, and we then, uh, I, I took it out to the local radio station and I, I had a bunch of people lined up, a lot of mostly women, mostly girls, young girls. And I brought it out to the station. It was like 20 below zero and I'm freezing, walking up to the station door. And I told the, the girls that we had lined up if they should play it, cause you could do that back. That was in 1902. Uh, you could, the DJ would play your record even on the big station. So I said, if he plays it, call, call in and request it, then hang up, change your voice, call in again. I didn't realize it, but I was beginning to be a promotion man and a marketing man as well. And you got to fool people, you know. My uncle who owned a record label had a saying, you can fool all the people some of the time, and that's enough to make a damn good living. And so they're calling in, and all of a sudden I'm driving home and I hear the DJ go, I think we got a hit here. And that was it. Then the competing station in town picked it up. It went top five in both stations. And then it spread out to 19 other cities. So we did our high school graduation and left out on tour. And it was interesting because I didn't know I was Mr. Manager. I was kind of the leader of the band at that point. But then Mm -hmm. I caught our manager. Somehow the money wasn't making it directly to us, you know. (laughs) And... uh, you know, I'm the wrong guy for that kind of stuff. My mother used to say that I should work in a clothing store because if someone wants a perfect fit, I'll come out and throw one. And so, uh, when I caught, when I saw that the money wasn't making it to the individual band members, I didn't need, it wasn't even a matter of confronting the manager. It was just, you're out. That's it gone. And then I took over. So I, that was the beginning of my figuring out that there's two words to show business, mm-hmm. show and business and you know it's not show art it's not show friends it's show business and if you understand that part of it then you will succeed 
And, you know, you have to have the tenacity and the focus. You know, Prince had all that. That's what encouraged me to work with Prince, by the way, Mm -hmm. was that when the first time I met him, he didn't come over and lay on my couch and say, put on the game, let's smoke a joint. If he would have done that, I would never have even thought about managing him. The fact that I could see that he was not only unbelievably talented, but he was focused, his desire, his passion. And all of us have have that everybody that was on early on with prince had that mm-hmm. it, it was this uh david z put it best he said we were just doing our passion we just did what we love to do we had no idea we would be contributing you know to history music history right. of someone who is has has just exceeded everybody's you know expectations right. about where that artist <clears throat> would go so we were just passionate back then. David Z, actually, I'm going back to now my band. David Z then joined my band. I don't know, maybe the drugs were better in my band. Remember, this was the 60s. But we went out on the road, and then after four or five years on the road, it was over. My my agent, my booking agent calls me, and he says, um, he says, I'll tell you what, uh, I don't have these gigs for you anymore like I used to. I said, you're kidding. He says, well, I have something very special in Duluth, Minnesota. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, you've got five nights at a lounge at a hotel in Duluth, Minnesota. And I'm like, dude, I'm out of here. I'm gone. And I walked out of the band. That was it. The funny thing was, I forgot about the business side. We'd spent all of the money. Yeah, you know, on the road, we had bought Jaguars, Thunderbirds. I had sports cars. And then we you never think it's going to be over. You always think this will go on forever. But you, we spent all the money. All of a sudden, it's like, damn, do we have to go to work at McDonald's? I can't go to work. I, I'm a star. I can't ask, do you want fries with that? <laughs> so the lead singer found a, a basement uh, place that sold aluminum siding to people. It was the biggest scam operation. But we could work out of a basement making cold calls, getting people to buy aluminum siding. So I'm not going to go on with the story, but it was a way to get back, you know. Right. So it's it's a long story. And I actually figured out, this would be kind of funny. I figured out that I was calling these people in, in Minneapolis and our, our job was to call women at home during the afternoon and tell them that we were working in their neighborhood doing aluminum siding, but we didn't want to move all of our gear back to the home office. So while we're in their neighborhood, we can give them a special. And then I would line up appointments, but I couldn't get any appointments. I figured I had to adopt a Minnesota accent, which Prince loved, by the way. We used to do that. Nobody knows that. But we would sit there and go, yeah, you know, geez. So I figured out if I called and sounded like I was right minnesotan which i was you know but really went into the accent so i would call these ladies and i would get at home and they have to geez you know we're in your neighborhood then you know and geez and you know we don't i started making appointment after appointment but this was not going to be what i was going to do for a living because i was still way into music obviously it was my life it was me so i that got boring very quickly and i decided to call the booking agent that i used and so I called him up and I said, Dick, I want to go to work for you. And he said, he said, well, you're just a hippie musician, you know, drugged out hippie musician, 
What are you going to do for me? And I said, dude, I watched every way you cheated us. I watched everything you did. I observed everything that you did. And I know every trick you used. He says, come on in. You start tomorrow. So uh, I went to work for him. Um, long story short is I was booking local bands. And one day, a, con- a, a big concert promoter called, I think it was Golden West, calls me. They said, we're bringing Steppenwolf in to uh, the Twin Cities. And we need it. We're, we're putting local bands on as the, as the opening act. That's why we called you. Right. So I said, okay, I got a great band that can open for them. And by the way, did you know that we provide backstage services and we provide food and limousines and security, you know, and the promoter said, no, that's great. That's just terrific. And so um, the interesting thing was, is that I lied about that. I'd never done that before in my life. And I hung up the phone and I ran into, you know, my boss and I said, oh my God, I said, I just lied my ass into doing food and security and limousines. <laughs> and wow. I started a business and my boss said, hey, you did it, you figure it out and you do it. Right. So I realized one thing, you could lie your way into the business. You could overpromise and lie your way in, but you better damn well over deliver. Right. So... I, the doorman to our office building had, I, he, I heard that he had a limousine because he would drive people to the airport. So I went down and talked to him. I said, good, you're the limousine driver. You're driving the people around. I called all my friends. I said, you're doing food backstage. I called, uh, a security, uh, I eventually put together my own security force, but I put together a security team that was doing sporting events and I put it all together. And they came in town, they had the opening band, but I made sure that I did the food backstage Mm. in their dressing room because that allowed me to hear the conversations between the artists and their managers and their road managers, and that was my college. I actually tried going back to college for a minute, and they came to me after three weeks. The, the school, the University of Minnesota, came back and said, this was after my band, you know. And they said, we don't think you're college material. We think you need to leave right wow. now. And I was like, cool. <laughs> I'm all about doing that. <laughs> I want to get out and get active and get busy. So anyway, my real college was being in the dressing room and listening to these conversations and and you know i'm here you know cutting the crust off of bread you know like spinal tap and i'm you know folding bologna and putting out fruit bowls and stuff but i'm listening and i'm hearing how they're talking and it was amazing to hear some of the stuff that went on between the acts and their managers oh where did this thing fail meanwhile there's a an audience full of 10,000 people, you know, at the Met Sports Center in Minneapolis, and the artist is saying, where did we go wrong? This is failing. It's not, you know, so I'm learning how to talk to artists. I'm learning how to be with an artist, and I'm learning how to defend myself when I would become a manager and what's important, you know, for an artist. And, you know, I'm sitting in, in the dressing room with Joe Cocker, Janis Joplin. You know, these are all the acts that eventually wow. we got into. I'm sitting with Mick Jagger and, and Keith Richards um, and listening to the conversations and talking to them just like you and I are talking now, you know. 
uh, at first I was very intimidated. Uh, and, uh, you know, so any rate, that was my college. And, you know, eventually I got to be, you know, I started promoting some of these shows. I made the transition into promoting. And I'll tell you a really funny story that's in the book. It's, well, your audience may not know who Howdy Doody was, but Howdy Doody was children's national television show that I grew up with, you know, in the 50s. And every kid came home from school. Howdy Doody saved my life. You know, I'd come home Mm -hmm. from school and kind of a rough household. And and Howdy Doody was the, and Buffalo Bob Smith, it's, you know, so... I wanted to become a promoter, and I and I called Barb Skydell, a premier talent, which had the Who at the time and all the major rock and roll acts. And I said, "Hey, I want to be a, I want to be a concert promoter." And she said, "Well, what experience do you have?" And I said, "Well, I do food backstage." And she said, "You know, b- folding bologna sandwiches is not really experienced. You got to be pretty experienced, and do you have the money? Right. Money I could get." So she said, "I'll tell you what." We have this act, Howdy Doody and Buffalo Bob Smith. This is in the 70s, and it's a nostalgia thing. On I said, I grew up with Howdy Doody. Does Howdy Doody play guitars? I, you know, it was a puppet. You know, what, what's the deal? No, it's a big nostalgia thing. We, we'll test you with Howdy Doody and Buffalo Bob Smith. And then if you pass that, we'll start moving you up to the bigger acts. Mm-hmm. And then you can have the who and the, the other acts that you want. Well, make a long story short, there was like, I remember my partner said, how many tickets did we sell? You know, it's like four days before the show. And I said, seven. He said, 7,000? I said, no. He said, 700? I said, no. I said, seven. Wow. We sold seven tickets. And oh my God, Buffalo Bob wouldn't go on because we didn't have the money to pay him. And, you know, but, you know, looking back on this, this was a learning experience. I was putting myself into position to make it by putting myself into these positions. Now, I teach at UCLA. I teach the business of music now because I teach people how not to get screwed. I had to learn by getting screwed by the best in the business, you know. Wow. And then you go, okay, I just lost a whole bunch of money that I don't even have, you know. <laughs> and uh, But that's how your learning experience, you know, formulated. Interestingly enough, I want to say something. Minneapolis was always a huge music town. You know, pre-Prince, there were all kinds of acts really working away. And, and my uncle had a record label. There was a series of five or six or seven top five, if not number one, billboard charted records that, that came out of there. And I'm talking about late 50s, early 60s. And so there was this first incarnation that came along. Then I kind of rode along the wave of the second incarnation. And it was all building up towards Prince coming out. Now, Bob Dylan grew up there. He was from northern Minnesota. But there was no business infrastructure at that time to hold him there and help him. And so he left and went to New York or went to Greenwich Village, you know, to become recognized. So any rate, uh, it was a long journey. Everything that I did along the way, I did eventually, after losing my ass on Howdy Doody on a puppet, uh, uh, eventually we got into doing other acts. And I opened up a, um, 
I opened up a uh, uh, Art Deco ballroom called the Marigold Ballroom downtown. It's not there anymore. Really cool place. Held maybe five, six, seven hundred people. Served alcohol. It was really, really cool old Art Deco 30s uh, club. And I opened it up and started bringing in acts in there. And some of the acts I brought in, I did Bonnie Raitt. Bonnie Raitt did her first album in Minneapolis. I had her perform at at the club, gave her her first two sold out shows ever. Wow! And uh, and uh, did a lot of other uh, acts there. We even had an old seventies act called Fog Hat there, which had their time. I had did the first shows for Billy Joel for seven hundred people. And sometimes you lost, sometimes you won. We, uh, Dylan used to show up there all the time. So that was another learning experience because that then led into me uh, working with the major promoters before I finally became a major promoter myself. But working for the major promoters, that taught me how to handle setting up a gig, watch the road crews come in, who did what? There was a sound man. There was a lighting man. They came in with big, huge trucks. So I got my education there. So mm. it was everything really was leading me on the way towards coming across Prince. And so I was kind of the music guy in town. You know, by that time I had become kind of the music dude, you know. So uh, it's really interesting because. You know, years, you know, in present time and years after uh, Prince, uh, the time I was with Prince, I can't tell you how many people I bumped into that didn't know who I was and introduced themselves as the person who discovered and managed Prince. And I'd, and I'd talk to them, looking in their eyes, say, hey, man, how was that? You know, oh, man, cool. You know, he came, oh, cool, man, that's great. You know, success has many fathers. Uh, I, and there are people before myself and Chris Moon who claim that they were the ones. I do, uh, give a lot, ton of credit to Chris Moon. Uh, and I really consider him to be one of the, the real deals. By the way, one of my security force guys, and when I ran the Marigold was a, little boy named Bobby Rifkin, Bobby Z. Rifkin, who eventually became Prince's drummer. Uh, but I really do credit Chris Moon for, uh, thank God, having enough sense to bring me the demo tape that he was creating with Prince at the time. And it's a really interesting story because everybody came to me to get him a record deal. I had started managing a couple of artists. I was involved with uh, a very prominent jazz singer who was from Milwaukee named Al Jarreau. Al Jarreau, major, major talent. And, but I didn't want to manage him at the time. And, and, uh, I got him out to Los Angeles and a friend of mine named Pat Rain signed him to Warner Brothers. And when Pat called me and told me that he had signed Al Jarreau to Warner Brothers, I was so jealous. <laughs> I was so jealous, and I, I was sad. And I thought, okay, the next person that comes through my door, but that will never happen again. You know, this was a one-in-a-million shot. <clears throat> if somebody else were to walk through my door like Al, that's a one-in-a-billion shot. That way. I'm in Minneapolis, you know. It's the Pillsbury Doughboy, you know. And so... 
um, it, lo and behold, in walks Chris Moon with his demo tape. Uh, and an advertising company at the time. I had an ad, I had a studio, a management company, uh, had a few near misses at signing acts to major labels. Because my uh-huh. thing was always, I'm not going to sign anybody to anything in, in Minneapolis. There's no real record label here. So get your ass out on a plane. I learned that. Put yourself into position. Get your ass on a plane. Get out where the ducks are if you're going to go hunting. So um, I had a couple of near misses. Got screwed again. Uh, worked my way through that. Learned. And uh, uh, my secretary buzzes into my office. As, you know, There's a guy named Chris Moon. And uh, he's sitting on the couch in the office here. I had 23 people working for me at that time. We were doing about $8 million a year. And uh, I, she said, he's got, a, he's got a big thing. And I said, well, tell him to come back tomorrow. Maybe his big thing won't be so big. I don't know what the hell's going on here. Who is he? He literally sat on my couch for a week. And finally, at the end of the week, I said, uh, all right, come in. What do you got? And he pulls out this cassette, and I'm shuffling the papers on my dad. I'm not even paying any attention because I, I had a, you know, there was a lineup of people that wanted me to sign them, you know, to something, management contract or get up a record deal or do something like that. My answer was always the same. It, you know, I would listen two minutes. I had two answers. One of them was, you know, really it's just a hobby. <laughs> which is the quickest way to tell somebody no and they get it, oh. you know. <laughs> the second one was to say, look, there's a lot of promise here. Why don't you come back in four years, you know. But when Chris played this, they had been working on songs in Chris's eight-track studio. Right. And when Chris played this music, because I had had a musician background, because, you know, I had now been around all the major acts, even though the songs were a little longer than they should have been, and they, you know, they, there was an element of something that was really different there. So I really give Chris a lot of credit for for bringing this, you know, uh, to me, and the fact that you know Prince had, and it was really interesting because Prince had come into his studio with the band Champagne before me, and they Chris and Prince had kind of developed a relationship, and after so I said to Chris. You know, who is this band and what is it? And he told me it's not a band. It's one guy playing everything. We wrote the song called Soft and Wet together, which which is what I listened to. You know, it was almost impossible for me to believe what he, you know, what he was telling me. Almost absolutely impossible. Right. And, but he had developed this. And then I said, after he told me it was one person doing this and all, all of that, and I pulled myself off the floor... Uh, I said, well, wh- how did you do this? He said, well, he came in with a band called Champagne, and we developed a relationship, and then two days later, I gave him the keys to my studio. And I said, dude, you you know, you, I wouldn't give the keys to my studio to anybody, you know, because you could come in tomorrow, that shit would be gone, you know? And, and it's really interesting because after meeting Prince, myself, and him coming over to my house, I gave him the keys to my house. <laughs> it was like that wow. there was, you know, you can't put your fingers on magic. You can't mm-hmm. define magic. You can't define what makes something 
a hundred thousand times better than something else. It's right. the magic. It's the real magic. And there was, you know, I don't want to get too like ethereal about all of this, but there was something about Prince that when you met him, you knew and you knew that he was directed, that he was passionate, that he was brilliant as all get out. And that invited you. You know, people say, well, who did you discover him, Owen? I don't know. Did I discover, Did Chris Moon discover him? I, I don't know. Prince discovered himself. But he was doing things. He was putting himself into position by being at Chris's studio, by being, in, you know, uh, with me, you know, at that time, and by uh, Chris getting him to me. And, uh, you know, there's a long story. It wasn't just like one, two, three. You know, I managed him. You know, there was a, right. a lot in between there. But I'll tell you something. I loved him. It, you know what I mean? Just who, he, you know, who he was and his being. Right. And that it was, look, I married and everything. So it's, I'm not saying it in that tone. But what I'm saying is I just loved him from the get. And, you know, I never even referred to myself in my own mind as his manager. He was young. He had just turned 18. I saw my job as protecting him because there was going to be a lot of wolves. He was young. He and Chris had tried to get a record deal. Prince went to New York. I think he got involved with somebody. You know, his sister tried to help him. She probably did a good job at trying to help him. But I think they were going to a company that's like one of these in-between companies. It would never have been good for him. Uh and so I saw my job more or less as to, as his protector to make sure that things were done right, to give him the environment that would allow him to go to his next level. Because it's never about me. It's always about your artist and what you could do. But there was some level, like Chris said, he gave him the, key, the keys to his studio. There was something that compelled me to fight for him too. And to make sure that his wishes were not granted, but followed through, that I could fight for him, you know, to do that. That's very, very rare. I've come across other talented people in my lifetime. I've worked with a lot of them. You know, I had the same feeling. I mean, I had the same feeling with Andre and with Jesse Johnson. And uh, there's a lot of other artists that I managed, even Al Jarreau in the early days. But Prince had this thing where you just wanted to be there and really help him uh, with his vision. So I'm just a luggage carrier for your vision. I'm also marching in front of you in the front lines to protect you from the wolves. And I would do that, you know. Somebody tried to get in his way, man, it was over. That's just the way it was because you get that passionate. So I really saw my job as to make sure that his vision got fulfilled Mm -hmm. and that's why when you know obviously here's another way i lied again because i had learned from my past i lied my way into the record labels and i called up warner brothers and i said uh columbia records is flying us out uh to Los Angeles for this young wonder kid that we have. And uh, while we're out here on Columbia Records money, <laughs> do you want to take a meeting? Oh, of course. Yes, we would. See, because right. you got jealousy going for you. 
Colombia is paying for it, so it's money and jealousy equals interest, and um, and and so I got that meeting. Then, as soon as I got up, done off the phone with Warner Brothers, then I got on the phone with Columbia Records. I said, "Hey, Warner Brothers is flying us out. They're taking a meeting with this young kid who's you know making blah blah blah. Do you want to take a meeting? Oh, Warner Brothers is yes, we'll take the meeting. Then I called A and M, and I got my way into four or five labels. There were two that rejected him. Uh, I have the rejection letter from RSO Records, which is Robert Stigwood. They had all the BGs and everything from that ilk. I've got that rejection letter, which is really funny. We think your artist, Prince, is, is talented. But we, it's, he's just not what we're looking for at this time. And I, I remember even thinking then, you guys just don't know what the hell you're thinking. You like just don't. The pretty woman moment. Huge mistake. <laughs> Big mistake. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, but I really knew I wanted to be on Warner Brothers. A, I knew they were an artist-friendly label. They really let their artists have a lot of longitude and latitude in what they were doing. B, I was almost had a job with them. I'm not going to go into that detail. But I had flown out about nine months before to see about having a job out there. So I knew them, and I was inside the, the, the company, and I saw how they cared for their artists. I also knew that, interestingly enough, the chairman of the record label, Mo Austin, who, by the way, started out as Frank Sinatra's accountant. They put together a little record called Reprise Records that was under the Warner umbrella for Frank Sinatra. And then several years, and Mo came in with that. Mo then became chairman of the, uh, of the company. But Reprise Records also had another artist that, you know, I unending love for, and that was Jimi Hendrix. It's really funny because it went from Frank Sinatra to Jimi Hendrix on that label. <laughs> they had a few, they had other artists. So I like the fact that they had taken some, un- understood a Hendrix. And they also understood how to create phenomenal successes, Van Morrison, Fleetwood Mac. And they, and from being inside the company, this wasn't like, tell the artist to go to hell. Don't. Their attitude was, let's find out, which was my attitude. Find out who that artist is and let's develop that. And I knew that about the record label. And I, when I was a promoter and a promotion man from the label would help me to sell tickets and all that, they cared. They were passionate about their artists. And so I, I, also Atlantic Records was kind of like that with, under Ahmed Erdogan when he had Atlantic and they had, but Warner Brothers was the epitome we really care. Um, Mo Austin, who was the chairman, Lenny Warrenker, who was the president of the company, and Russ Thyret, who was senior, uh, senior vice president. One of the main reasons were there was Russ Thyret. They were so passionate about Prince that I remember Russ telling me, you know, when we got into a bidding war, I walked into a meeting at Warner Brothers and I said, you bring this kid on the label or I quit. How often does that happen? And there were other labels that were really interested, but they weren't quitting their jobs, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. Russ Thyret used to, when Prince and I would fly out, he had a two-seater Mercedes. Prince would go in the very back because <laughs> I didn't fit. I was way too big. 
And, uh, and Russ would drive us around town and then we would go to his house and we would sit on the floor and talk music, Prince, myself, and Russ. And he would tell us about the business. The other labels, which were great labels, I'm not saying anything negative, they wanted to take us to big luncheons. They wanted to ha- impress us with meeting people on the label, which Prince was really not that interested in. I was, I was kind of, hey, I want to meet this artist. You know, Prince was really not that interested. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, but Russ would take us, pick us up at the airport, drive us around Los Angeles, then we'd wind up at his house, sitting on the floor, listening, talking music, while he explained how the business worked from their angle. And, you know, those three guys, Mo and Lenny and Russ, cared so much that at the end of the day, the decision was made. I wanted Prince to be there. He finally came to that conclusion but we had to get a bidding war together. So I had to use, because I wanted three albums firm. And that was unheard of. You got maybe one album, maybe two albums, if you were lucky, out of a record label. I wanted three firm. And our attorney was Lee Phillips. He was Barbara Streisand's attorney. Uh, we brought that vision to him, and he had agreed to fight for us and get the labels. into. So we needed a bidding war. A, to get the money for what we needed to do out of Warner Brothers, and three, to get three albums firm. But that's where it wasn't about the money. It was about the the caring as well, both of them, show and business. And so they came to the table. I got to tell you, after we made all the label presentations, I came back to Minneapolis. I thought my phone would be ringing off the hook. And I sat for a week and no one called me. And I thought, how can this be wrong? They met this kid. They heard his music. They see he's got a management team. And I, and then I get a rejection letter from RSO Records. And I was, I was literally crying in my office. It was like, why don't they see the vision? And then I get a call from A&M Records after a week. I mean, I, I couldn't even sit in my office. I was so upset because I thought we were just going to make this instantaneous record deal and life would be grand. No, that was not the case. I sat for over a week in my office with no phone calls, and I knew that if I called them, I would lose my, you know, my deal-making ability. I would show weakness. So I had to sit tight, you know. And I one day when that rejection letter came in from RSO Records, I just walked out of my office and I walked for 4 or 5 hours, just walked around. I couldn't believe it. The following weekend, I was my wife was saying, "What's wrong? I'm so depressed. I can't. This doesn't make any sense." The next Monday, there's a call from A and M Records, and I thought, "Oh, here comes that rejection." So I'm like, I'm on the phone. I'm like, "Yes," and I said, um, "The guy said we love your artist," and that's all that kept echoing in my brain we love your artist now a&m had had some magnificent acts they were big record label Mm -hmm. it was like my heart was pounding and but i'm thinking well one is is warner brothers gonna call because i know they're gonna take care of them a&m was a great family type label too they were great i get another call the attorney lee phillips calls columbia records wants to make an offer i'm like oh but i had to sit tight with warner brothers i could not give away my deal making position because that's where i wanted to be 
They called. I didn't call them back. Didn't call them back for about a day and a half. It was like, you know, it's like that, that girl you wanted to date and you know that if you acted like a fool, you know, she'd pick up on it. You know, it's like, you know, got to play a little hard to get and do all this. And, and that's what I was doing. And then finally Russ called me and he said, I walked into a meeting and said, if they don't bring Prince onto the label, I quit. Huh. And I was like, yes, but Russ, we need three albums. Well, have your attorney talk to business affairs at Warner Brothers. I was like, yes. And then in the next two weeks, we got this bidding war going. Every major chairman and president of every top label in L.A. is calling little old me from Minneapolis. But little old me knew how to do the game because I had had all that previous training. Right. And... Every major record label is on. The, it was a dream. It literally was a dream come true. But, you know, you can't get caught up in the dream. Yeah. Yeah, in my position, you have to get caught up in the business. And you, instead of going, oh, my God, oh, my God, look what's happening. I train myself to go, don't do that. What's the next step? So we put it together. Warner Brothers offered the three albums firm, which was unbelievable. We signed the contract. Contracts, the ink is not even dry on the contract. Prince and I are just sitting there. We had a little party, you know, uh, at a restaurant uh, in, in St. Paul, Minnesota, actually. And Prince comes to me. He says, Owen, what? No one is producing me. Because Warner Brothers wanted Maurice White to produce him. Verdine White was brought in. And these were all, like, people that I respected, you know. Owen, no one is producing me but me. And you know, I didn't fight him. I believed he could do it. Now remember, I had listened to the Chris Moon stuff. Right. We had with David Z, who did a magnificent job on recording the demos now in a real studio. Right. You know, 24 track state-of-the-art studio, Sound 80 in Minneapolis. I knew I was way ahead of Warner Brothers on that. And so was David. David knew what was going on. Um, and you know, who's going to believe us, you know, but when Prince said it to me, it was like, okay, so the ink's not even dry. I'm on a plane out to Los Angeles from Minneapolis and I'm to meet with the, with the president, the chairman to say, uh, Prince is going to produce himself. And the first answer was, okay, he's never made a full album before. He's a young, he's a teenager. And this is his first album, and we just gave you a whole boatload of money. You know, how is this going to happen? And I didn't stop. I just didn't stop. I just kept going and, and talking to everybody. And finally, I got to uh, Lenny, the president, and uh, and... I came up with this test. I said, Lenny said, I presented it to Lenny. I said, okay, let's record him at Amigo Studios. Let's tell Prince he's got free studio time out here in Los Angeles at Amigo and let him go in and create a track and let him create that track and watch him and have whoever you want in the studio watching him. And so I called Prince and, and it was really interesting because when the Maurice White thing 
came down that Warners wanted Maurice White. The greatest thing about Prince was that he wasn't like, oh man, that's that's full of shit. Not, not a, he wasn't like that. He wrote me a note and he said, Owen, I really respect what Maurice has done and I respect Earth, Wind and Fire. It was just, just like that. He laid out the respect. It was so articulate and stuff. It, chokes me up even kind of thinking about it but he said but they've had their run and i don't want their sound imprint overlaying my sound i'm going for something new so then i believed it and uh lenny organized the the session prince and i got on a plane flew out and you know People didn't, he didn't realize that while he goes in, now first of all, from, from my recollection, he is in the studio and he lays down the drum track first. Now, when you're in the studio, you in, in those days especially, you're working with a click track, which just keeps you on time. It's just clicking in headphones and then you can keep time. As far as I remember, he went out there and laid down the, the, drum, the drums to the song with out a click track and then he goes out and he plays you know you have to develop your rhythm section around it and he lays it down the rhythm section he plays the bass right on time just perfectly i mean i knew he could do that but what he didn't know is that in the control room of that studio were the top top record producers of that day russ Teitelman, teddy templeman lenny warrenker um, uh, and they were all watching him. Gary Katz, all of the top producers were in there. Prince thought they were probably janitors. He probably didn't even know who the heck they were. And he's in there laying down this song. And the beauty of Warner Brothers and the beauty of Lenny Warrenker at Warner Brothers, who was an, a music person. He was head of A&R and he was president of the company. These were music-centric people. You don't see that today. Sorry. Sorry today. You don't see it. And I'm very angry about that. Right. Halfway through, Lenny pulls me out into the hallway and he says, okay, we don't know what's going to happen with this album. It may or may not happen, but we'll let him do it. We'll let him produce his own album. And I was like mm. so excited. So I go in to get Prince and Prince comes out and he talks to Lenny. And uh, <laughs> the first words out, Lenny says, okay, you got it. You can do your album. You can produce your own album. And the Prince looks at him and he's, it wasn't like, oh, I'm so thankful. Thank you so much. It was, can I finish the song now? <laughs> I don't do, I don't half step. Right. I'm going to, and then his second words, don't pigeonhole me. Don't make me a black artist. Mm -hmm. Now coming from Prince, that's okay. Mm -hmm. We knew exactly what he meant. Lenny knew exactly what he meant. Then Prince turned to him and said, I make music for all people. Don't pigeonhole me. Right. And uh, Lenny said, you got it. That was the beauty of Warner Brothers. I know there's a lot of conspiracy theories about Warner Brothers. I've heard, I read the stuff, I follow everything. Look, <laughs> these people 
felt the same way Chris Moon did and I did and Bobby Z, all the young people, David Z, the people that were there in the very beginning that weren't on payroll, mm-hmm. they felt the same as we did. You know, we love this, we love this kid. And he was tough. He wasn't easy to do business with. You know, he was, he knew what he wanted. Um, tough? No. No, not at all. He was a pushover. You could get him to do anything. Prince, go down to the store, get me some milk. You know, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but see, that's what you dug about him is he was clearly defined as a human being. I don't want to tell you what I was doing when I was 19. You'd have me arrested. Okay. <laughs> This, he, this was clearly, def- this was like a 40-year-old CEO of a multi-billion dollar business. He was directed. He was focused. He was, it all came there in one package. And uh, I, that's magic. Now, you might say, no, it's not magic. It's genius. There's an element that I don't care how smart you are. There's an element of magic to the music business. It's that undefinable thing why does some? Why can you hear some artists and they sound great, but the, but people won't buy their records? You know, why is it that other artists, maybe not as talented as that artist, come along and they're selling in the millions of units? How does that happen? That's that kind of magic, mm-hmm. and it's undefinable. And you, if you try to define it, you'll just wind yourself up in some institution someplace because you can't. There's no reason for it. So when I say Prince discovered himself and we were there to help him along the way, it's kind of like between Chris and myself and Robert Whitman who did the first photographs and Bobby Z and David Z and all the people who were involved, we were like compelled to do this. We wanted it to happen. And it was kind of, it was Prince's who he was, yet he was tough. And it could be very easily perceived that he was a prima donna, but it wasn't. Because a prima donna is somebody who's going to fail and they can't pull it off and they have this attitude. The difference was with Prince is don't ever dare him to not be able to do something because it'll be done and you will right. be wrong. It's crazy. <laughs> Am I talking too much? I'm no, sorry. I just His discipline at that age was ridiculous. Another thing that's interesting to me because Chris Moon... I know that Prince later in his career was kind of obsessed with people's last names. What's interesting about Chris Moon is there's so many things through his career that had Moon in it, whether it was Under the Cherry Moon, Slow Love, The Man, The Moon is Smiling, even towards uh, his piano microphone shows with the moon and the fro playing into it. Yeah, what, what was it? Well, Under the Cherry Moon, Sea oh, Moon. Right. Seeing all the stuff, show her the moon. I actually talked to Chris about that. I mean, I, we don't have any big answer. I talked to him a few months ago about that. Uh-huh. I didn't even. I didn't realize it. It didn't even hit me. Mm-hmm. And Chris and I were talking, and 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 he said, "Oh, and is it? Stri- he's, he's got this slight British accent, you know." And he's, you know, he says, "Does it strike you as something funny?" And I said, "What?" He says, "Chris Moon, Cherry Moon." You know, and it's really funny. I got off the phone and I called Bobby Z and I said, I just heard something. This is pretty odd. Do you get this? I don't know. I don't have the answer to it. Was he enamored with him? Was he? uh, um, It's hard to know. (laughs) I know there wasn't anything under the cherry husney. I can tell you that. (laughs) It's just 
there's just certain things that were meant to be and we'll get into it it's just like when you're listening if you're a deep hardcore fan when it even comes to for you just as long as we're together and what he's playing and the vocal changes he makes where he goes into that deep voice that larry graham voice you knew that eventually how him and larry graham in the future came to be it was inevitable although it wasn't exactly popular with uh, Prince's fan community at the time. It was inevitable because of Larry being such a hero. And there's just certain things we're going to get into as well with the Larry King interview where uh, his name escaped you at the time. We'll get into that. But everything plays a part. And this is it as you were part of the journey for you and all these things that came to be you fighting for that three records knowing how important it was because the first record didn't do too well with two records they may have cut their losses especially because he went over budget on the first record correct it was the whole contract was one hundred and eighty thousand dollars for the three records what he said yeah he went slightly record? over budget that's a, it's been a little exaggerated over the years but he went slightly uh-huh. but you have to remember it wasn't like you could not go over budget unless I was calling back to the label and, you know, they would come up and hear certain things. Right. Uh, I think even admittedly, and Prince has admitted this, he admitted to, uh, admitted it to me that maybe he worked a little too hard on that album because he wanted it to be perfect. Right. And, you know, he, we wanted to come out. We had a saying, you know, the, the cold slap. That Prince and I had. We wanted to come out and just slap people across the face with the album called it The Cold Slap. And, you know, just really wake them up and get them to hear this. And he even admitted a little bit that, well, he did. He admitted it quite a bit that maybe he he just wanted it to be so perfect. But, you know, if you listen to that opening acapella track for you, he meant that from his heart. He really created this album for you. It wasn't just some kind of gimmicky, you know, and he told me about it, what he wanted to call the album. It wasn't a gimmick. It was, he, he was, he, you know, Prince turned himself inside out to, to give us his gift, you right. know, and this was the beginning. If you listen to that track and the title and everything he meant, it, this is for you. This is from me to you. That, and it, as simple as that is, it's it's deep and it's real. This is not contrived. So, you know, I, we used to have to take breaks during the recording. When we were living all in San Francisco, you know, we got on a plane. My, my then wife, Prince, Andre, who was just so helpful and so instrumental in being there with us. And my dog was there. You know, we were a family and we lived there. And I... I think I told you this yesterday, you know, we're making that first album and, you know, but we're all living together. I got a, a great deal. I got a great deal for a three level Redwood house overlooking the San Francisco Bay in Marin County. And we became a, a unit, a family unit. And, you know, this, as odd as it sounds, people had to clear their dishes you know, you got yelled at if your dishes didn't make it into the sink. You know, you had, and I think I, I was telling this, you know, to someone that it's really funny. You had to take out the garbage. You know, my my then wife was there who was really like the surrogate mother. I was kind of like the surrogate father. The only difference was, you know, we didn't, 
I didn't then drop the kids, Andre and Prince. I didn't drop them off at hockey or, you know, <laughs> soccer. I dropped them off at a studio to make history. That was the only right. difference. Um, but we really grew together as a family. But then as the, the, you know, we started to get into the second and third month and Prince was trying to make this perfect. It got, it got very tense. So then David Z, Prince wanted David Z out there because David Z has perfect pitch and he wanted that help. So I'm on the phone to Warner Brothers. So you got to understand, people say, well, it went over to budget. and did. This was all with the okay of Warner Brothers. So I, you know, I wrote a letter to Warner Brothers from San Francisco and I said, Prince wants David Z out here because he's doing these vocals. We kept, I wanted us to be in San, I, I wanted to do the album in Minneapolis. We were setting the whole premise of control for Prince and staying in Minneapolis. But the studio didn't work out that well. They replaced some gear and it wasn't functioning properly. We brought in Tommy Vacari as an executive producer. Warner Brothers wanted that. And so uh, we moved to San Francisco. I would not come to L.A. I did not want us to be in that fray. And have everybody, and Prince even ad admitted this to me. He said, you know, remember, Owen, we went to record for CBS Records at Village Recorders once when they were trying to get a deal. He said, I walked out of that studio and walked down. I can't remember who the artist is now. I'll remember it in a minute. But I walked out of the studio and walked downstairs into another studio and just went in where some other major star was recording and just sat there and listened to them. I don't want people doing that to me. So the record plant became the place to take him. It was isolated. It was in San Francisco. Really, nobody really knew where we were. We could get there from the house in five minutes. So it, there was reason for everything being done, and it was to create that that sort of. We didn't want to be in the fray of any of everybody else. Uh, we wanted to do our job, maintain control of what we were doing. Tommy Vacari really helped out quite a bit. And uh, he was the executive producer and the engineer. Prince learned from him like a sponge. It was amazing. Um, it got to be very tense, though, because we're, you know, we wanted to get ready to mix the album. We knew we had to move down to Los Angeles to do it. And so when David came out, uh, he lived at the house with us. He joined the family and was doing the vocals. But David and I were in a band together, and to break the tension, we had a history of doing some really nasty-ass uh, practical jokes, <laughs> which Prince loved. Right. Because a big side to Prince that loves practical jokes. And we played one on Tommy Vacari that didn't go over very well. It's in my book, Famous People Who've Met Me. Uh, you know the practical joke that but so we had to start doing these practical jokes which prince loved doing to break the tension right. and to do that we uh, prince got a squirt gun and we'd go to a restaurant and we'd all be sitting there in the restaurant and and, and he would hold the squirt gun under the table but he'd shoot it up into the air and all of a sudden people all over this fancy restaurant would be wiping stuff off their shoulders what's going on looking at the ceiling trying to figure out if their friends spit on them and we we could not contain the laughter. But Prince, he's got a straight face. I mean, this dude, knew, he, this dude knew how to pull it off. Trust me. We're all like biting our tongues and he, he, he. And he's just sitting there like, hey, what are you guys all laughing about? You know, come on, what's you crazy? What's going on here? And uh, he was doing that. I think David Z got him a, a fake hand, <laughs> you know, at a joke store. So it was a fake hand. Look, like it had been torn off. 
Oh, Prince gets a hold of that thing. We're in San Francisco, and Prince pretends like he's running for the bus with his fake hand under his sleeve, and the door kind of opens, and then it closes, and he pretends that the door pulled off his hand, and the bus is pulling away, and the people on the bus are looking out, and Prince, they're seeing the hand on the ground, and Prince is like, my hand, my hand, and people are looking in horror off the bus. Oh, my God, that kid's hand got... <laughs> and But we're all laughing, and he's in character. He's totally, and I keep thinking, oh, boy. When this gets going on the road and when Prince gets out there, I see how this is going to go now. This guy's in character. He knows how to do it. He knows how to stay there and let you be the fool. He ain't going to be no fool. You going to be the fool. <laughs> he would definitely do that throughout his career. Band members are talking about Morris Hayes, even Damaris Lewis. He pretended to be housekeeping or order food to their room or wake-up calls so he was constantly pranking people as far as i know i wasn't in on any pranks hopefully thankfully my sense of humor sometimes i just don't get stuff (laughs) too serious um i pulled him on him too i had to get him back oh yeah we were staying at uh, sheraton universal in los angeles here and at universal city and uh i had a prank that i used to do when i was on the road with my band is i I'd call his room, and I had a way of disguising my voice and giving it kind of an accent or something, and I'd say, uh, is this Mr. Prince? Yes. Your dry cleaning is here. I'm bringing, I bring your dry cleaning up. No, I don't have any dry cleaning. Please do not bring this. No, I come up. You look. It's your dry cleaning. Has your name, your room number. I do not come up to my room. Do not, do not come up to my room. I'd be there in two minutes. I have a, a nice pants for you and a shirt that ironed everything you asked me. To. I did not ask you. These are not not my. I have jeans. I don't wear jeans. I'm sorry. Go away. Go away. <laughs> and then he'd say, "Please do not come up here." And you he would hang up. And then I'd call him. Then I'd knock on the door, and he'd he'd say, "Who is it?" I'd say, "It's Owen." And then I'd open the door and I, he said, man, were you that dude, the dry cleaning dude? I said, yeah, I had to get back at you. You were always doing stuff to me. Come on. Hilarious. <laughs> but it was, so it got very tense and we did the practical jokes and we did it. Uh, interesting story. I would like, a lot of times I would drop Andre and Prince off at some music store and they would jam and. And uh, one day I get a call from somebody. Hey, man, we met these guys at the music store, these two kids. They, we could not believe how incredible they were. Just could not believe it. And uh, and they gave us their number. And I'm saying, you know, I'm dad. No, nobody's coming here. We're making an album. We've got to get down to L.A. and, and mix this album. And I'm sorry. No, we're not doing any parties or anything. Who is your guy? Oh, we're Santana's band. Oh, excuse me. And we saw Andre and this guy Prince jamming, and they were so connected and so on it and so incredibly talented. We could not believe it. Uh, and so uh, we wound up becoming great friends with them. They invited us to a on New Year's Eve a Santana concert at, in San Francisco. We hung out with them. There's another story in my book about going up to Carlos's house, uh, which was an, another rare and interesting treat that happened. 
But, you know, I will tell you that it was so great having Andre there with us. He was so musically attached, both of these guys, to each other. As far as I was concerned, they were, they were soulmates, you know, from another planet, <laughs> soulmates on another level. And Andre was, you know, he just, he's a great guy. And it was so, you know, when Prince said to me, uh, Owen, I want Andre to come live with us. And it was like a no brainer. You know, Andre had been over to my house. You know, we'd become friends. And Andre was there through every phase of that, just being there with Prince, doing stuff, discussing musical stuff, being there as, as, uh, you know, one of the strongest friendship ties I had ever seen. And, you know, I didn't even, you know, I'm a manager. As a manager, you pop into a studio and you pop out. You don't sit there like a knucklehead while your artist gets nervous. Right. You know, it, but whenever I popped in to bring food or to do anything, Andre was right there attentive. He, you know, he knew everything that was going on. And even from very early on, you know, I picked up on this was a very special relationship. And Andre, as you know, I managed him later on. He ultimately talented as well. It's like, where do these kids come from? What's going on over North Minneapolis? What the heck? Is there special water gardens over there? Is there some kind of food I should be eating over there? You know, these guys were special. And you have to remember, I, I think Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis came from over south. Everybody gravitated through North Minneapolis. Morris, you know, all of that. How does that happen? You know, how does that happen? You know, in addition. And, uh, I think the greatest story is just in the terms of, of the discovery, I put that in air quotes, of, of, of Prince was me being kind of a, a white, chubby, nerdy guy from St. Louis Park, Minnesota, which was one on one side of the earth. And then everybody living over north, <laughs> which was Prince and, and, and uh, Andre and, you know, Morris and all those people kind of the two worlds met and kind of gave forth this explosion that caused little old Minneapolis, Minnesota to be a giant on the, on the musical map where everybody was talking about the Minneapolis sound and all of this. How that came together, you know, sometimes I have arguments with, you know, Andre says, well, no, we were very in Champagne and what that band, whatever incarnation, we were very popular. You just guys never heard of us, you know, because all you heard about was the other bands coming from the other side of town. And it's sort of not true because if Prince would have popped up on the radar, I would have heard about him. But they were kind of secluded in their area and they were about to create a gift to the world. Nobody knew it until people like David and Bobby Z and I crossed over that imaginary barrier and got involved in their world. Pretty mind-blowing world, too, of serious talent. But, you know, I know I'm probably overly talking about Andre, but I just think he's a, I think he's a good guy. I think he's ultimately talented, and I think no one will understand the friendship that I witnessed between the two of those guys. Right. Growing up. And underneath that house and everything else, you know, they were, they may not have been blood, but they definitely were brothers. Yeah, and there was another thing, too. Andre's mother, Bernadette, mm -hmm. she was a pretty serious lady. You didn't want to get in her way. 
Yeah, I tell a story in my book about showing up at the house because they were living in the basement. I wanted to see the famous basement, you know. And I, also, I was about to invest money and my time and myself and my life into this. And I wanted to see what was going on. So here I am, I'm knocking on the door, you know, and I'm hearing kind of this yelling. And I think, oh, God, do I bolt back to my car? You know, what am I walking into here? And then the door opens and it's Andre and I'm thinking, damn, this guy's good looking too. What's is there a like an experimental lab in the basement where somebody's putting these people together, you know? And um, I come in, he introduces me to his mom, and his mom says, oh, "I'm sorry, you probably heard some yelling or something going on. These kids got to keep this place clean. They got to do their homework." She, Andre's mom, was a very special person to me, and I think she's part of the ground zero too. Uh, Prince was fortunate enough to, when he ran away, you know, and he stopped by his aunt's house to move in with Andre and his family and Bernadette and Andre's mother. She, uh, she's a very, very special person. She cared deeply for Prince. She cared that things were done right for him, you know. You know, I used to say in the early days, I remember riding around with Bernadette when I was managing Andre, and I kept saying to her, you know, I just hope he doesn't, like every artist I've ever seen in my life, I hope he doesn't blow through his money. And she's, no, I know Prince. He will not, you know, he he will not, he will all, because there was a point that got a little testy there in the 90s. Um, and she said, he won't, Owen, I know. And uh, there was another thing that happened. Oh, she used to tell me that, you know, the kids would go to sleep and she'd be in her bedroom and it'd be like four o'clock in the morning and she could hear this guitar coming from the basement. You know, Prince would never sleep and she could hear these licks coming from the basement. I could always uh -huh. hear them. So that's craziness. What you're saying about Andre, oh, he's good looking too, because when you first heard Prince's music, when you're like, okay, this band is great. Oh, it's one person. You were thinking, oh, please don't let him be ugly, right? <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, that was the number one thing was, when Chris played me the tape and I and I heard this, how the music was being put together between the guitar and the keyboards, and, and it was rough. I mean, it wasn't like a hit record sitting there, but it was kind of it was kind of rough. And 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 uh, I kept I kept thinking, uh, but this is so good, and this singer there, there's a vulnerability to the singer's voice. And then the next thought was, damn, I hope he's not nasty looking. Because that would just blow it all. This guy was like 400 pounds, you know. And, and yeah, I could probably, he probably will have a hit record someday. But, you know, it's got, I just hope he's not nasty looking because that's going to put this crimp on everything. And then it's interesting when he came over to my house for the first time uh, and I saw he was gorgeous, you know. Now, he wasn't six foot nine let's put it that way and he was not wearing the clothes of a wealthy man because he wasn't a wealthy man he was living in the basement but there was a look about him and and it was almost undefinable i kept thinking maybe he's egyptian you know i don't know he's got a kind of an all kind of people look you know to him but i remembered one thing and that was um little richard and there were pictures when little richard was in a band he wasn't little richard he was in some band at that point or maybe it was a very early band picture of little richard but you know everybody's kind of in the picture everybody's looking one way and they got their hands on their cheeks and they're kind of looking the other way and looking over here and 
there's little Richard and he's staring right at you in that picture and his eyes, they're burning and they're burning into your soul. And I kind of remembered when Prince walked in the door, it was the same thing as that early Richard picture or little Richard picture is that his eyes were direct. First of all, they were beautiful. <laughs> and secondly, they were very, very direct. And, you know, I like to have fun and maybe tell a joke or two not. And, there's a certain kind of person that laughs at my at my jokes. And so I wanted to break the ice right away, so I'm told some stupid joke. So I made some comment that flew out of my mouth. And Chris Chris was there and he was kind of like, Well, we need to get down to business. You know, and, so, and Prince just burst out laughing when I said something. And I thought, he gets it. This guy okay, so he can play all the instruments. He's gorgeous. He's direct. I can tell he's focused. And he's laughing at my comments. And I was like, oh, man, you know, I'd get married if I could, you know. <laughs> but those are the, <clears throat> but realistically speaking, <clears throat> excuse me, those are the things that make you want to fight for him. Right. And you had this, you had the talent, I mean, maybe not six foot nine, but he had the look. It wasn't like the song Video Killed the Radio Star, which I think was right. inspired by Christopher Cross. <laughs> but, you know, people who don't know that, go back and look. Great voice. Uh, Large dude. Yeah. <clears throat> you were hoping wouldn't happen, and that's what you got. And it was like it was too much, you know, because it it was everything that I had hoped for and more. Because I'm a marketing person, and I have to think from a marketing angle. Come on. It's show business. Right. You have to think, how does this get marketed? How does this, how are we going to get this kid across? And I'll just add one more thing. When it came down for me to create the marketing press kits and all of that, and again, it's in my book, I'll go, I'll touch on it, but it's in depth, mm -hmm. is the first thing a good mar uh, manager or a person working with an artist should understand is you don't try to turn them into something else. You know, I didn't have that conversation where I said, hey, man, could you be a little more like Michael Jackson? You know, could you just, or could maybe you should wear a three-piece suit. Prince was not a talkative person. He was not committed to small talk. You knew something was going on in that brain, but you knew that there, he was one, there was a mystique because he was one step removed. So this might be a bad word in some people's minds, but it's not. If I were managing you, I'd do the same thing. There's a word called exploitation, to exploit that. So you don't try to make your artist into something else and exploit that. You take who that artist, the essence of who that artist is, and you exploit that. So if Prince didn't say much, but you knew it was heavy duty, whatever it was, don't try to turn him into a, you know, a talking Pee Wee Herman or whatever exploit that mystique that he has. So when it came time to do the press kit, I knew enough to not have 10,000 words on his press kit. Just don't say anything. Right. And it, that came from talking to Prince and trying to figure out how do I create a marketing device that gets us signed? Right. How do I do that? And uh, it was, and then it hit me. He doesn't say much. His music does the talking. So let's create the mystique and set it up enough for people 
that they'll want to know more about him rather than give it all away. And I say right. that to any artist that's aspiring. Don't give it all away. Don't don't give it all away. Make people pay for it. Don't put 12 songs on your album. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Don't do 12 songs on your demo. You know, albums are kind of a thing of the past anyways because people just go on Spotify and select what they want. But don't, you know, if you're going to do a demo, don't do 12 songs. Give them two, maybe three. And if it's good enough, somebody will want to know or hear more. And that was the whole setup that, you know, that I, that I kind of used. But Prince was naturally a mystique. So let's do that. Let's not say very much about him at all. And then people will start asking questions about him. But it wasn't fake. It was real. It came from who he was, you know. I've sat with other people trying to direct artists, and I've listened to them, and it was like, man, just put on this suit, wear this thing, look like that, act like that. That's trying to turn your artist into something they're not. So from the get, we were doing the following. We were saying we want to be in control of everything. We will create the mystique. Prince will produce himself. And so, you know, the I was... You know, look, retrospect, retrospectively, looking back on that first album, sort of perfect that it didn't take off and become a five million, ten million seller. We were disappointed, but retrospectively, everyone, I, every author that I've known that has written a best-selling book their first time can never get it back. Everybody that writes a huge hits movie the first time. So again, I think the forces were working because when you allow for the growth of an artist and they can take you on their journey, that's what, that's the difference between a great album and a great career. The Beatles took you on a journey. They made it very simple for you to love them in the beginning. I want to hold your hand. I can give you 10 other artists that made it very simple in the beginning then take them on the journey. So, yeah, maybe we were disappointed, but first albums are first albums, and the record label could have dropped him, but they didn't because we had gotten firm albums out of them. But they committed to going into that second album, and they knew that he was going to build. They didn't expect him. These days, you could go out and sell 170,000 units on some label, and they'll drop your ass, Okay. No artist development as far as I'm concerned. I don't care who calls me and tells me that, that you're wrong, Owen. No, I will tell you 15 reasons why you're wrong. So uh, retrospectively, for you had to happen. And it was good that it wasn't a monster album because then the expectations for your second album will crush you. Even someone as ultimately talented as Prince. Well, man, your first album... That was so huge, but you didn't do that on the second, you know. So build your build a career. Don't you don't have to build an album. You know, a lot of times artists would come to me and they, you know, they would play me their demos. It was like on their 14th Pink Floyd album. The stuff music is a theory. It's great, but it's a theory. No, give me something simple and take me on your journey with you, okay? Right. Now, <clears throat> for you ended up having nine tracks on it. People didn't know how prolific Prince Wiz was at that time and how many unreleased songs he has. Without giving away too much, 
How many unreleased tracks do you think from the For You era are in or are floating around? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to say there's ten thousand, but there's a lot that I know of. <laughs> Uh, a lot of stuff even that do not know about right well a lot of stuff that chris and prince uh you know it's interesting when when chris came to me i said what do you want what do you want out of this what do you he says i just want to co-write with him you know that's that's what i want to do but on those there's other stuff on that early uh chris moon uh, there's a song called aces which went on for you know five hours you know and there was actually a sax player who they brought in i think it's like I think his name was Bill something back in the day. And I know what they were doing. They were trying to show Prince's talent and the talent of everything that was going on. It's just a little too long. There, there were a song called Make It Through the Storm, uh, which I believe Chris Moon owns at this point. Uh, there were several songs that he did at my house, you know, that people have never heard. But I would say, and, I know because Prince has talked about it, it's something that I have. There are quite a few other songs that he's written that he talks about that never saw daylight. Um, uh, so I think from that era, it, I think, look, I don't want to say there's thousands, but I think there were probably, I, and look, this is just me talking, you know, I don't know if some factual, but from what I've been able to see, probably 12 to 15 other songs that would have been viable for the album i thought make it should uh, make it through the storm should have gone on the album i think prince retrospectively felt it should go it was a little slow when he did the demo of it but he wanted to kind of speed it up and 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 rock it out a little bit uh but if you look back on it retrospectively which you know what do they say about being a monday morning quarterback it's always correct, but it's always useless, you know. <laughs> but looking back, uh, I'm it. It you. It's almost like it was pre-written that it should turn out this way. Imagine if he had sold ten million on that first album, the expectations would have been so tough that if you sold four million on your second album, there would be disappointment. And that's how the business operated in those days. Yep. It's just interesting because to me. The For You record is still so heavily overlooked when you have songs like oh. In Love on there. The Soft, Soft and Wet, which was the debut, which introduced him to us, to the world. He Crazy. changed that up quite a bit from the original demo. Soft and Wet? Yeah, quite a bit. He even changed some of the lyrics. Even with Just As Long As We're Together, although some people feel it's too long, I think Six Minutes is just right with that funk on that record. In Love? In love, but baby is the killer because yeah. that the lyrical content of someone who is 17, 18, whenever he wrote that and recorded it, it just showed his songwriting ability and how much older he was mentally to be able to write those things and do those things. Well, look at it this way back in that day, people who got their girlfriends pregnant. And I'll add on to that story. But people who, you know, people who got pregnant, boyfriend and girlfriend, teenagers, it was a monumental thing. And it, 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 what are we going to do now? Well, I guess the word abortion comes up. 
you know, I guess right. the people are scared. I guess, you know, all of the, you know, the worst things come up right away when that happens. Parents are saying, you've got the rest of your life. Do you just do this now. End this pregnant, you know. But when I first heard baby and I heard it on the Chris Moon demo, I'm thinking there is a sensitivity here because it's, you know, baby, what are we going to do? I hardly have enough money for two. But at the end, he writes, I hope our baby has eyes just like you. And who is, what teenager is coming from that perspective? Who's coming from there? Not me. That wouldn't have been my thought. But that's another thing that led me to say, this is that there's an undefinable magic. For him, it's probably a no brainer. But looking at it askance, it's, it's, it's that magic that separates those, you know, the, the sound alikes from the reality. Right. And that type of sensitivity. And I always felt that someone else should redo that song, however they want to redo it. I think there, uh, there were songs, you know, the greatest thing about being dad over there in San Francisco and having Prince and Andre in the studio was that all of a sudden there'd be a knock at our bedroom door at 3.30 in the morning. I'd be snoozing. And it's, Owen, Owen, you got to hear this. We just cut this. And then I would gladly wake up. And then downstairs in the living room, he'd be blasting something they just cut. And it would just be blowing me away, you know. You know, after he died, that was the thing that hit me, that hit me the Mm -hmm. most was him waking me up. And just going downstairs and listening to something he just cut, you know, full blast in the living room at four o'clock in the morning and not caring that I was, had been woken up. Right. So, you know, and I thought about that all the time or him coming over to my house and there was this, he'd play me something that he had just worked on and, and, uh, it just uh, was, you know, was mind blowing. So any rate, before I get too, (laughs) too sensitive about that, no, no. uh, it's very cool when it comes to baby and other things. And what's interesting about that, we talk about the songwriting and how adult it was. And I remember when he released his One Night Alone piano CD in 2002. And I thought it was very reminiscent of some early tracks in his career. Yet I saw a so-called critic uh, talking about how the songwriting wasn't up to par. Like it just shows like he's being a teenager. And I'm like, well... That teenager made some really good material then, <laughs> really adult material. Now, after For You came out, soft and wet, modest hit, got a lot of play. But as you said, the record didn't sell 10 million copies, but it ended up being a good thing. But did it put a strain on your relationship with Prince? Well, I, yeah, and I think that um, it was a disappointment to all of us you know, because you kind of live in a bubble and you know for certain this is going to happen. I'll tell you what I think a catalyst was along the way, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm sure, you know, we came back to Minneapolis, we're, you know, doing some promotional tours and we're feeling like we're, you know, this is it, we're kings, queens. And this obscure record sort of comes out of nowhere and all of a sudden... It's number one in every free country on earth. Hmm. 
Funky Town. And that kind of taught us a lesson because it was huge. It was huge. I know Stevie Greenberg and David Z put that together. Greenberg had a great concept in, you know, want to get out of, you know, funky town. David created the loops and created a lot of the sound of that record. And that was somebody we had worked with. I don't know if that had an effect on Prince. I think it did. Now, again, I could be totally wrong. It had an effect on me. Because it was it was huge. And literally Steve Greenberg had an idea before this. He was he was in a band, they were doing kind of weddings and bar mitzvahs and stuff, and he had a, he actually sent me a song called Rocket. Uh so it might have been a little bit a little bit later than that, but it was kind of mind blowing that this thing just, you know, got to be huge and we thought we were huge. But like I said earlier, what was the follow up to that? Where did it go? What was there was too many expectations, couldn't follow it up, you know. So when you talk about the success now and you look back retrospectively, for you has its place in the development of a gifted artist. And that's very important, you know. But we were disappointed. You know, I'm not gonna go into the whole thing, it's in my book, but you know, uh Prince wanted to tour very early and he wanted to put a band together and he didn't want, he wanted to headline <laughs> right away and put a band together and headline. Right. I'd been around the block before. I didn't feel we were ready. Uh, and headlining is, it's a good way to get your head chopped off in this business, you know, by just jumping out. Mm-hmm. You need to go out and open for other people and blow them away and make them kick you off their tour. By the way, who was the opening act for the first Monkees tour? Jimi Hendrix. He got thrown, his ass got thrown off very early on because he was, people were starting to love him and it was a weird mix, you know. But I knew that you you still have to, no matter how gifted you are, you you do have to go along the ropes on, on several things. And so it, our relationship began to strain a little bit because I did not want to keep taking money from the record label in the form of advances because I knew that you have to pay the piper back out of your royalties. If you take too much money from a record label, they can put a lot of control over you because you're assigned to them. It's a marriage. You, you got married. You and that record label are a husband and wife, you know? And if, if you owe them too much money, and I knew that if you want to go out and you want to be a headlining act, I mean, how are you going to do that? Remember, show business. Mm-hmm. What's the cost of going on the road? What's the cost of transportation? What's the cost of eating at McDonald's every day? What's the cost of buying peanut butter for the, you know, uh, you've got to build to that, you know. In class at UCLA, I teach, you know, you got to go out on the I'm cold and I'm starving tour is what we call it, where you're eating peanut butter in the back of some van that you rented and you're sleeping in motel, not motel six, motel two. And, you know, you're making it happen. And, and, uh, you know, but to jump out, take a bunch of money to get all the gear and everything and everybody up to speed is you're going to have to borrow a lot of money, and it's called tour support. 
but you got to pay back the record label for that. So right. I didn't want him to get too in debt to the record label I did because we would lose our control. But he wanted to go out. He wanted to, you know, headline right away. You know, it's a very interesting thing. The person that says no to an artist that's close to them, the person that's a, that has the ability to say no to an artist is the person that cares the most. Uh, and sometimes the artist doesn't even get that because they, when you say no to an artist, sometimes they take it as, oh man, you don't believe in me, you know? Right. But you really care the most, and I really cared that. But it actually, you know, kind of became a big point of dissension between us because I was trying to slow him down. I wanted to see how the album was going to be received. My, I was pounding Warner Brothers, trying to get him a booking agent, you know, doing the big stuff that, that needs to be done. I think at that time, there were people beginning, as happens to every artist, I don't hold it against anybody, people start whispering in your ear, man, look, you know, your manager, they should be doing this, and I, you know, and and I think the whisperers step up and start doing that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and so I'm looking tough because I'm saying, no, I want to control the expenses because it's a business. I want to make sure he doesn't get too indebted to the to the label, and I and I felt he should be an opening act at some point because you'll learn the ropes that way. Um, and yeah, you know when you're an opening act, the main act does has all kinds of tricks that I used later on with my artists. They, you know, you go on as an opening act and you're really good. The main act will figure out how to get to the sound man and make your sound real stupid when you're when you when it's your turn to go out and open for them. You want that to happen because it means something's happening. So I, you know, I wanted him to build up through that. And I think the whisperers came in and I think, you know, it, it, it prints, you know, man, your manager should be doing this, man, your man. Everybody think knows what somebody else should be doing, but they're, they're not doing it. <laughs> you know, if you're so damn smart, why aren't you doing it? You know, then I think it started to conflate between was I supposed to be his runner or was I supposed to be getting on a plane and pounding the tables at Warner Brothers? And was I supposed to be uh, uh, getting on a plane, which I did, and flying out to New York and getting William Morris involved in him and planning the big stuff, you know, and making sure. And, you know, as bright as Prince is or was at that time, he didn't have the experience to know you know, what should and should not be. So, I don't, you know, I don't blame him. But we also, our relationship was not Mr. Manager and Mr. Artist, you know. our we're Because we had lived together, because we had formulated this from the beginning. And here's where I will talk about myself. I think in the beginning, it was 50-50 between us putting it together. Obviously, his genius. So what was my genius? My genius was bringing his genius out to the world, okay? There was a 50-50-ness. You know, I don't think it, it would never happen again with him. And I only say that because it was the beginning. It was the infancy. So, it, you know, I had the marketing firm. I had the ad agency. I could facilitate his plans. I could put together a press kit. I could bring in the photographers and do this. And he listened to me because he had never done it before. I had been involved in it. So... 
you know, obviously very quickly he put it all together and he absorbed how everything should work. And then his, his genius took over and then that was it, you know. But there is a beginning to everybody and everything. Everybody has a beginning. You had training wheels before you rode your bike. That's just how it works. Yeah. I may have been the dad who put the training wheels on the bike so he could ride the bike. And then he figured out how to take the training wheels off. And he was driving down, you know, 60 miles an hour on his bike. But that, but there has to be a beginning. And so I, people didn't understand how close we were. I think a lot of people were whispering. I think that he didn't know. You know, it, 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 the space heaters and that's been out there in history, uh, you know, of Prince, it's, 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 that's just the crock. That's just the event. It's like, you know, the old argument, if you, if you're in a relationship and somebody is making breakfast in the morning and they burn the toast, you have a big fight over the toast. It's not about the burnt toast. There's something much deeper, you know, that's going on behind that. And, I think he was interpreting my wanting to slow him down a little bit because he had never done this stuff before. And my wanting to slow him down a little bit was because I really cared how he was presented to the world. You can get your, as I said, you can get your head chopped off wanting to headline when you haven't been out on the road opening act. And... I think there were people that were saying to him, man, you should just be headlining and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, Prince did have a lot to, uh, going for him with me at that point because I had a marketing firm with 23 people and five secretaries that would do anything he needed. Uh, I, you know, we had, I had capabilities of recording. We had capabilities of doing all the marketing. We did the album cover. We did everything. So, he had that so it wasn't and it was funding him so i had that ability to do it i don't think that usually people who whisper in artists ears are people who have their own failed careers and they want to live vicariously through that artist so there's a, a number of things and then all relationships have their ups and downs but i think it wasn't, there's a famous story about the space heaters, but what had been happening is I think he was interpreting my one, my wanting him to slow down and not go out as a headliner simply because of the expense. And also he did not have the experience on stage. Maybe he felt he did. Maybe his well-wishers thought he did, but he didn't. And so it really came down to you know, there were a lot of demands that were being put on me. And I was feel like one of the revolution band members told me, they said it got conflated Owen between, you know, maybe Prince at the time thought you were a runner or something like that. And quite didn't have the full capability of understanding that you're working on the big stuff. I need to beat up the record label. You know, I need to find out where his product is in the stores and where it isn't and then call up and yell at the head of sales and say, hey, I was just in Chicago doing some promotion for Prince. I didn't see any product in the stores. These are the things that managers do as well as take care, you know, of their artists. Remember, we were in our infancy then, you know, so, uh, you know, uh, people misunderstand. They think that he was prince with a big giant capital p at that point you know a 40 foot capital p no we were in our infancy and just putting it together so at one point you know 
things were getting pretty demanding and I didn't want to stand in the way. I did not want to get into fights with him. It was going to hurt. I'll tell you personally, it would have hurt me too much. Secondly, I didn't want to, I didn't want him. I saw some disappointment in his eyes when that first album just didn't take off like crazy. I really, that, you know, we had been winning ever since the day that he met me, we were winning. And then suddenly we had a reality check, you know, and looking and seeing disappointment, which was both of us, uh, albeit I knew enough about the business to know that we had made some inroads. But he didn't have that experience, you know. I'm older than him. I was 10 years older than him. I lived, I've seen how things happen and don't happen, you know, and how a growth cycle works. So I think at the end of the day, it was starting to get strained. I think I was saying no, and because I really cared, I think people were then whispering in his ear, and the whole thing kind of starts to, you know, uh, to, to blow up a little bit. So I left. And I left because I didn't, A, I didn't want him to perceive me as getting in his way. You know, you can look back in history. I never sued him or anything or did it. I had full rights to it. I had a full contract with him. I cared too much about him. I might, it's like if a father argues with a son or his daughter or something, you know, maybe they're going to not talk for a long time. But I just didn't want to be in his way. And I didn't want to get into these fights with him. And I didn't, and, and he was starting to say some things, quite frankly, to me at the time that I just don't allow anybody to do. And so I, you know, I am a human being and I do have a very good sense of myself, but I still loved him. So it was very tough for us on both parts because, you know, he wrote me a letter after that and he wanted me to come back. And, no one has ever seen this. Very few people. Maybe four people have seen this letter. Because it's like, here, I want a certain amount of people to know the truth about this. I actually picked up a book the other day, a Prince book, and I read it. And it, this dude said, yeah, I went over to Owen's office and fired him. Okay, nice job trying to place yourself in history. But, you know, you haven't seen this letter and you ain't never going to see this letter. But it was interesting at the end of the letter even though he professed his love for me in certainly the same way I felt about him, you know, he still had some demands at the, end of the, at the end of the letter. And I said, you know what? It's time for the next person. Prince is learning at lightning speed. It's time for somebody else to take over at this point and, and do it. I'm not going to sue him. I'm not going to do anything to stand it. I, I had seen too many stories of people who had managed. There was a, a Credence Clearwater uh, Fogarty had his career stopped, I believe, by a manager. Uh, Billy Joel stopped performing, I think, because of what he, I didn't, I didn't want to do that. Plus, I knew I was going to manage other artists. I also knew that I did everything for him perfectly and that, um, you know, that we had done it correctly. We had made all the moves correctly. And also, selfishly speaking, I didn't want to get involved in suing him because then who else was I going to manage? Hey, Owen, aren't you the guy that screwed over Prince and tried to stop his career for two years? Would you manage me too? So I had to forecast and think myself. All relationships break down. All relationships do this. 
But who's ever whispering to him, good luck to you, because I'm sure you're still at home whispering to yourself now. Mm. And don't try to place yourself in history because it ain't true, because I'll prove you wrong every time. And, and, but what happened is I never, it, it never got to the point where I was, had a hate on or anything like that. It seriously was like a child or, uh, or just someone you cared for very, very deeply and you were not going to stop caring for them. And at least later in his career on Jughead, when a few people were mentioned somewhat sort of and managers, it wasn't a, a blow at you. No. But later on during a Larry King interview, when he asked who his first manager was, your name escaped him at that time. You know, uh, it's only my theory. I'm not Prince. I don't have his mind. You know, I, I can only tell you from my perspective. So this is, I want to be very clear about this. As I thought about, I wasn't even mad. I was watching Larry King and I saw it. I know somebody who was there with him who wanted to wring his neck when he said that. Um, I didn't want, uh, I didn't get mad. I, there was nothing because you know what it's kind of like? It kind of in a weird way, people probably really perceived it as, boy, he must hate Owen or something like that. I saw it as a little bit differently because I felt the same way about him is that I think that, you know how you, you have a relationship and it breaks up. Maybe she walked out on you, you know, and you're still lover or something like that. And, uh, and then somebody says, you know, man, I saw her the other day, you know, and, and you're going, yeah, man, that fuck, screw her. I don't know what I can say on broadcast and podcast here, but, uh, you know, ah, screw her, you know, hope, you know, hope she falls down, you know, whatever. No, it's you really care. And it's kind of your way of saying it, 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 this is the way I read it because our relationship was, you know, I, I think it was pretty deep for the time that it was there. Yeah, we're just two people and things are going to happen between the two of you. And it, it sort of, it sort of reeked of being, you know, there was some depth to our relationship. And he was kind of like that person, because I, I, you know, we all do it. You know, it's kind of like that person, you know, your boyfriend or girlfriend walks out on you and you're really hurt. And it did hurt you because it, it, it was like that. And so you say, oh, yeah, that ass, you know. But you don't really mean it. You're just saying it, you know. Screw them. They didn't know what they had with me, you know, blah, 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 blah. But underneath, it's got kind of, I kind of miss that relationship. Otherwise, it would have been a lot deeper. And, you know, it's interesting knock on wood you know uh it would have been you know people would call me all the time and say man prince is going to sue you and he's going to do this he's going to do no and i would say to people no he's not he's not going to do that that's no matter what he where he goes to no matter what he does he knows the truth i know the truth i love him I, i'm not there's he ain't going to do it and I really, even as much as two or three years ago, somebody called me and said, man, he's going to blah, 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 blah. I hadn't done anything. It wasn't even concerning me. Right. Oh, man, he's going to do, oh, you don't understand. And I just said, it ain't going to happen. It right. will never happen. Right. Now, we know later on after that, 
not the Larry King interview, but after you were no longer his manager, you ended up managing Andre Simone for a bit and Jesse Johnson as well, correct? Yeah. Well, let me back up a little bit. If you go to a Musician Magazine, uh, I have it. He does talk about me. And it was before it was before Larry King, so I don't know, but it was before I don't know when Larry King was, but he's he's he talks about me, and it's very and he says Owen believed in me, he really did, blah blah blah, and you know that's in in that he it, whenever he was on the cover of Musician Mag, it could have been late eighties or something like that, nineties. Oh, so you would know I, I, I have it and. He is speaking very positively about me, you know, but a long time had gone on. We all change and grow and we're different. I did not, it didn't bother me in the least that he did it. You know why? Because at that point, I wasn't worried about what everybody else thought. I only knew in my own heart how we were to each other. I've got cards that he wrote me, birthday cards, and I know how he felt about me. There's just no, you know... And that's only between me and him. There were a million people after me. That's the way it was going to be. So it didn't bother me. Fine, dandy. <laughs> okay. That's crazy. But it's at least good you have that to go back on. Well, subsequently, a, a lot of people, everybody brings it up because everybody else is very mystified by it too. Right. So the fact, it's one of the things in interviews that comes up the most, by the way. And because there's something about that where I don't think everybody perceives it as there's a prince has a big hate on for me. I think they perceive it as why did he do that? Because we all know the story. Right. <laughs> now be an answer that we'll either get from him in the future or won't get it all. <laughs> no. Uh, but you did. Now, when you were managing Andre and Jesse, did you, even during that time or after that time, what was the last time that you ran into Prince somewhere? Oh, I had run into Prince a couple of times. Uh, one time I was working at Paisley Park doing a project. And I think Bobby Z was there with me, and he came down into the studio. Uh, this would have been after Purple Run. It's maybe 89, I want to say, 88, 89. And he came down into the studio because he heard I was there. I didn't even know he was in town. And I'm not going to talk a lot about it because, you know, it was great. And, you know, I was like, hey, man, how you doing? But I sort of didn't know who that person was. He had changed a lot. Or he wanted me to have that perception that he had changed a lot. Look, all of us change. A lot about us remains the same. But we build layers on ourselves as we get older and put different veneers and things happen to us. But he wasn't, it, he was there, he was in the room, we were yakking and talking, but it was not, I did not know who that person was. It was really, I even dreamt about it later on, you know, and and uh, it was it was pretty interesting. Um I saw him again when he was on, uh, I got invited to the Tonight Show when Jay Leno was doing it and he did a performance. I think it was the last, it was actually, the performance was outdoors. And, you know, I saw him then. Right. Uh, 
I'd seen them on airplanes a couple of times, you know, uh, back in the first class days, you know, he was first class, I was first class, you know. Um, but some things are just better left between two people, you know, and some things are, you know, I knew that he knew. It's why I would tell people that ain't nobody suing me, you know. Uh, well, you got Jesse now, and now Prince is going to come after you, and all this kind of stuff, and and you know that was that he knew. I, I and I feel peaceful about that too. I don't right. feel, you know, he may have said to somebody, "Oh man, I hate Owen," or whatever. I don't know if he did. I don't think he did. Right. But no, that that isn't going to be because as long as I feel the way I feel about him, it's okay. <laughs> Because I'm, right. I'm only concerned with me, and I care deeply for him. When, you know, his death hit me a lot harder than I ever thought it would. Right. I think it hit all of us tremendously. The book is famous people who've met me. We're talking with Owen Husney. Um, I appreciate your time. Please read the book because there's other stuff before Prince that's very interesting after Prince that's very interesting, a Tupac story in there. Make sure to get it. Is there anything else you wanna you wanna touch base on regarding the book or anything else with your time with Prince? Uh no, I think I think everything is probably you know pretty self explanatory. Again, I want to say in the book, there's a lot of life lessons that I had on the way to Prince and that I think are valuable for people in the business to read. And just to know how a career gets kind of developed and uh, the people that I bumped into. And uh, somebody else asked me this. They said to me, um, what's the biggest lesson that we should take away from the book? And it's like, you know, and because the book is really about me. You know, I didn't write a Prince book. I wrote a book about me and my experience of Prince and, and where it is. But they said to me, so what is the... What's the takeaway? And I said, to be honest with you, if I can do it, anybody can do it. Right. You, here's, here's the mm -hmm. steps I went through. And you, you can do it too. You, it, just having a passion about something is not good enough. Right. You have to work your ass off for that passion. And that's what I did. Mm -hmm. And it's like David Z said, I think I said it before. David said, we were just doing what we loved. We didn't know we would be contributing to history. Right. Definitely. And I think that's why, you know, when it came to Prince, where you said that Andre and Jesse, they came to you to uh, guide them, correct? Yeah. One day I'm at my office. I had had a I, I had built a 24 track studio in my office mm -hmm. and I get a call from Andre and uh, he says, man, I want to play you some stuff. I said, cool, come on over. And I, I listened to it and it, he, he was doing it was great. He was writing it. He had a song, I think, called Kelly's Eyes that, that he had written. And, and, uh, I really, I said, well, you know, what do you want from me? You know, and he was like, man, can, can you put this together for me and work with me? And it was the same with Jesse. Jesse mm -hmm. came over to my studio. He played me a bunch of stuff. And I asked both of them, I said, you know, why me? And they said, well, we saw what you did for Prince and we saw that, you know, he trusted you. Right. And trust is a big thing and that you can make it happen. And, and that's what you did. And, and, uh, you know, if you would have screwed him over and stolen money from him, we wouldn't be here. You know, I also signed Sue Ann, which is another, I signed her to Warner Brothers. I signed 
Andre's production stuff. I signed uh, Jesse had Tamara in the scene. I signed that. So we built these careers, and uh, and it was it made me feel very good because they were observing and they knew. So even that ties into the Larry King thing <clears throat> that they knew they knew where my heart was for Prince, and they right. knew that they could trust me to put this together. Very cool, Owen. I want to thank you so much for your time today. Making sure today of all days, the 40th anniversary of pretty amazing, isn't it? We meet up and the release of your book. You guys need to pick it up. It's definitely something you want to read. A lot of stuff isn't covered on those early days. And Owen's book, Famous People Who've Met Me, does that. So again, Owen, thank you so much for your time with us today. Thank you, Dr. Funkenberry. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> thank you so much. It. And at least you know... Unlike back in the day where people like, oh, no, Prince is Dr. Fungaberry. You know, that's not to be true. I thought that was. People said, no, it's Prince. How can you be doing that? You know, but no, it isn't. And, and I'll tell you something. I had listened to a bunch of your podcasts, and mm -hmm. you can tell I'm yakking my fool head off. I wouldn't have done it if it wasn't who you are. So sorry to lay it out a little bit for you, but it's the truth. I appreciate it so much. Thank you again, Owen. You guys... Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to subscribe to other people about us. Not everyone knows about us yet. Only you. Thank you so much. Till next time. Keep it funky. Show me what you got. Show me what you got. Show me, show me what you got. Show me what you got.